So today we only have three books to look at. So we're looking at Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So we're continuing our survey of the Old Testament. We'll take a bird's eye view of Job, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. So let me pray and then we'll get started. Lord, I pray that you will be with us this morning as we study your word. Help me to teach your word with truth and grace. I ask that you use the best parts of this message to encourage and edify your people. I pray that there will be a nugget of truth that each of us can latch on to and reflect on in the days, weeks, and even years ahead. Lord, I pray that you open our ears and our hearts to want or to what you want us to what you want to teach us today about yourself and about your world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so the Old Testament is divided into three almost equal parts. You have the history, prophecy, and poetry sections. Um, we have completed the books of history and the books of prophecy. We're now starting on the books of poetry this week and next week. There are five books of prophecy um, total, and uh, today we're going to cons- we're going to look at just three of them, and they address the three mysteries of life. You have Job, which is about the riddle of suffering; Ecclesiastes, which is the riddle of oops, sorry, which is the riddle of existence, and then Song of Solomon, which is the riddle of sex. I'm going to spend the least amount of time today on the book of Job. Why? It's the biggest book, but why? Because most of us know it, right? Everybody knows the story of Job. But if you don't Um, read it, you won't ever have it. Correct. So you need to do it, but but I'm going to be on it. So what I mean is you'll never face Job's temptations if you just never read. I used to think that. I think, I just don't read Job. I won't suffer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, so we all understand the book of Job, so I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but we're going to look at it. Um, and then Ecclesiastes I'll spend a little bit more time on, but not as much because it's the most, it's really probably the most easy to understand book in the Old Testament. Song of Solomon I'll spend a little bit extra time on. Why? Probably because it's the least understood book, uh, most confusing and most neglected book in the Old Testament. It's not, it's not commonly taught in Sunday school. I don't think anybody's ever, ever had a Sunday school lesson on the book or even heard it in a sermon. Um, it is a book of ancient Eastern, Eastern poetry that Western sensibilities can find certain aspects of it to be uncomfortable, um, you know, even scandalous. It is a book of the Bible, part of the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful and is good for his people. So we'll start off with the book of Job. Job is a Hebrew drama, um, and the action is mostly composed of dialogue. The title is derived from the main character, who is Job. We have no idea who the author is, who wrote the book, or when. Uh, It's possibly the oldest book in the world. This book deals with the problem of suffering. Have you ever asked the question, why do God's children suffer? Why do I, as God's child, suffer? Why does God afflict a man who fears God? Why does God afflict 
God-fearing Job, why does God afflict you? Why does God afflict Christians with terminal illness? Why do Christians get involved in natural disasters? Why do Christians lose mother, father, brothers, sisters, husband, wife, even children? Why does a just God do it? Why do we suffer? So this book addresses that. The word Job, or the name Job, has possibly two <clears throat> origins. Arabic origin, if, if it's of that, it means the one who repents. If it's of Hebrew, the name means the persecuted man. Job was a real person. This is not a fictitious story, not a made-up tale, um, not a story written to make a point. It is about a man who really lived and died. Job is mentioned in Ezekiel 14.4. And 20, and he's also mentioned in James 5:11. As you, as you know, we count it as we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. <clears throat> so Job is a native of the land of Uz. Where is Uz? Probably located somewhere between in Palestine, northeast of Palestine, between Damascus and the river Euphrates, kind of around that area. Archaeologists have dug up the region of Uz, and um, it is um, where they think Uz is, and they found over 300 cities in the region. Um, so um, it was a very active part of the world in the time of Job. Job probably lived around or before the time of Abraham. There is no reference to Israel in the book, no mention of God's covenant with Israel, no mention of the call of Abraham, no mention of Sinai or the tabernacle or the temple or the priestly institutions. Um, the call of, uh, there's no, there, the only reference to worship is family worship. Um, and that's a, in one five where they have a family altar, which was common during that time. Um, Job probably lived during the time between the Tower of Babel and Abraham. Probably in your Bible would be Genesis 11 and 12, probably where Job occurred. Job was very, very wealthy. He was the greatest of all the men of the East. And he was a judge. He was greatly respected and loved in the community. Before we go into the suffering parts uh, of the Bible, we need to look at, or of the book, we need to look at the first part um, and reflect on the first two chapters. Um, so Job was a righteous man in the eyes of God. So I'm going to read Job um, 1, 1 through 12. There was a man in the land of Uz, and his name was Job. And, the man, and that man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send an in, and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For all, for Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going from to and fro from the, on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And, Satan said to, or, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job not does Job, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and, and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in, in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So, as a result, Job lost his wealth. He lost his ten children. He loses his health. He's cast out into the trash pit. I mean, in those days, they, um, if you were, uh, if you if you sinned, they figured it was because you, if you were suffering, it was because you did something grave and had a bad sin and said they'd toss you out. You were not useful for people or even animals. You were in the trash pit. Job law, Job's wife tells him to curse God and die. Job has nothing but his life and is now visited by his three friends. Um, and they were also considered to be wise men of the day and very wealthy. And then in Job 3 through 37, we have various discourses between Job and his friends and a man named Elihu. The, man, the main thing we see in, the, in these discourses is the bankruptcy of the prevailing theology of the time. They believe that you are suffering because you somehow deserve it. Yet Job is an exception uh, to this. That no one can find fault in Job he doesn't admit to having any fault. Um, you know, they're saying he must have done something, but he's saying, I did not. So he cries out to God and eventually receives a revelation from God that leads him to peace. And it's a revelation of divine sovereignty. The lesson is that God does not explain himself. He does not respond when we cry, why? But what he does do is to an anguished Christian, is that he gives them a sense of his own greatness. And this helps the Christian um, enter into the peace of submission. God is God, so trust him. Trust him because of who he is. This is how the book ends. His friends are rebuked, Satan is confounded, and Job is rewarded. Evil is not an impersonal force. Evil is a person who is, an in, who is the enemy of God and the enemy of those who are God's children. This, this is the person, a person who accuses God's children, who brings actual disasters into their lives. There is a person who is under God's sovereignty who brings about calamity, storms, disease, illness, trouble, loss of position. 
And that person is Satan. We see him 19 times in the Old Testament, 14 times in the book of Job. Our question shouldn't be where it comes from, but it should be, why does God allow it? The book addresses this question, the problem of pain. Why does God allow pain? Why does God allow Christians to suffer or anyone to suffer? We have, we have in this book the fullest treatment of the problem of pain. Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Suffering is part of God's way to teach us and, and to refine our character. Do I trust God for who he really is, or do I trust him when things are working out well for me? That's the question. So the book of Job is a book about trust. Every character in this book makes a mistake except God. Satan's mistake is he thought that Job trusted God because of what he got from God. Job's mistake is... Job's wife's mistake is that she thought that if you have lost all your family and wealth, that you've lost everything. Life is no longer, there's no, you have nothing else to live for. The three friends' mistakes is that they thought that suffering was a direct outcome of sin. Elihu's mistake <clears throat> is that <clears throat> he thought that because he had part of the truth, he had all of the truth. Job's mistake is that he thought that God is unkind. But God does not make mistakes. We question when we suffer. We must, we must not trust him because of what we get from him, but because of <clears throat> what we get because what we get from him is not always pleasant. We trust him because he is God. He is sovereign. His wisdom and power is perfect. He loves us. He loves his people and he works together for. He works all things together for our good and his glory. We must trust in him. That's the book of Job. All right? Um, and if you're trying to take a bunch of notes, know that all this is going to be on the internet later, so when they post it. So I wish I had time to go through more of it, but i got to get through everything. All right, so Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> Continuing our bird's eye view. Now we're in Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes deals with the riddle of existence. This book evaluates life. It tells the world what life is like, what life is worth living. This book is timeless and always up to date. The Septuagint uh, used the Greek word Ecclesiastes as its title for the book. Um, this is derived from the word Ecclesia, the word Ecclesia which means assembly, congregation, or church. It simply means preacher. The Latin Ecclesiastes means speaker before an assembly, the book of the preacher. <clears throat> Solomon is the author. It's noted multiple times in there. And it is a poetry book of observations, reflections, reasonings, and conclusions. Ecclesiastes is... Possibly the easiest book in the Old Testament, Old Testament to understand. First, what we must understand is the perspective or the viewpoint of the speaker, where he's coming from. Once you understand that, it all starts to make sense. Solomon looks at life from the viewpoint of both an unconverted man 
and a converted man. He does this alternatively throughout the book. As an unconverted man, he looks at life <clears throat> with the mind of an unenlightened of, of that is unenlightened by God's revelation. As a converted man, he looks at life as someone who knows God and comes to completely different conclusions about life. When he looks at it, at life as an unconverted man, he says that everything is vanity. It's all meaningless. There's, there's no point to it. It's a waste of time. When he looks at life as a converted man, his heart wells up and he's filled with confidence and certainty in God. <clears throat> so, one example of an unconverted perspective is Ecclesiastes 1, 12-14. And he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. His conclusion is that everything is meaningless. And then the converted perspective, a couple examples of that, and we'll see some more, is Ecclesiastes 3.14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. And in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. All right, so in the book Ecclesiastes, we have a couple key words. And they're, they're split up two key words into each type of section. So we have unconverted sections in here, and one of the key words there would be vanity or meaningless, depending on your version. In Hebrew, that word means temporary, transitory, something parting quickly, something without any substance, a mist, a wind, something that is futile, a waste of time. The other word or phrase that you'll hear frequently is under the sun. Under the sun means, um, it is, refers to those who can only see life from the perspective of the worldly. Someone who is confined to this world and has no other light to shed on the situation. A worldly perspective. And in the converted sections, <clears throat> you have God, and then you have heart. Um, with heart, he sees that the unconverted man doesn't, sees what the unconverted man doesn't, and it touches his heart. There is joy and satisfaction in his heart as he sees that life does have a purpose, and when he sees that, the, that life and its gifts are God's gifts. All right, so the outline, and you can see in your handout, um, it's broken down there. There's the intro in the beginning, epilogue in the end, obviously. And in the middle, there are four sermons. And on your outline, each sermon begins with an unconverted perspective, which is marked with a, neg a minus sign, and ends with a converted perspective, which starts with a plus sign. So in the intro, <clears throat> we see the viewpoint of the unconverted, um, that can, and that concludes that life is pointless and our actions are without significance. So the intro reads... <clears throat> Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. 
Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Here he surveys the life, he surveys life and comes to the conclusion that the whole of life is a waste of time. Life is pointless, has no meaning, has no purpose. Nothing is permanent anywhere. Verse 3. Did I skip one? I skipped one, but you can see verse 1. The words of the preacher and the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Solomon is telling us that uh, who he is and that he is a man who has sampled everything that life has to offer. Now back to 3. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So what he's saying here is, can you strive for anything and gain and keep it? You ultimately lose it. Whatever a man gains in the long run, he ends up losing it all. What is the point in striving for anything if at the end you wake up with nothing? Chapter 4, or verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Man is short-lived and man dies. The stage remains the same, but the actors come and go. Verses 5 through 7. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it, goes, where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, where they flow again. There they flow again. We live in a world of constant activity without getting anywhere. There is no goal that is to be reached. Oops. Um, all, verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. This world is monotonous, is what he's saying. Constantly frustrating, never satisfying. Verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. History is as, just as repetitive as nature is. There's nothing new in the world. And then finally, verses 10 through 11. Is there, any, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. Imagine a pristine beach. There's no mark on it. The tide has just gone out, and you walk out on that beach, and you put your footprints on the beach. You may think that these are the only footprints that have ever been on this beach. That is not true. Others have had footprints on that beach, but the tide has washed those away. And as soon as you're gone and the tide comes again, your footprints will also be washed away. That's what he's saying. Some people hope to make a mark on history, but any mark we make, other people have already made. Other people have already hoped to make, and they've already been forgotten about. It doesn't take long before everyone has forgotten any mark that you will make in history. You can't accomplish anything worthwhile. All your efforts will be forgotten. No one will remember that you have ever been here. All our striving, discipline, sacrifice, suffering, labor is pointless. This is the unconverted perspective. And it's true if there is no God. Solomon asks, is there any meaning in life? If so, what is it? Why are we here? So, then we get to the sermons. So the first sermon, 
Remember, they, each sermon begins with an unconverted perspective and ends with a converted perspective. So the first one, unconverted perspective, is intellect, pleasure, and hard work is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. They do not give life meaning. Contrast that with the converted, and that is satisfaction can only be found in God. Everything is part of God's plan and full of his purposes. Second sermon. Again, unconverted perspective, chapter three or verse, yeah, chapter three, verse sixteen. There is no justice or happiness in this life. Human skill is futile, and prosperity brings nothing but trouble. Even popularity brings no lasting joy, for people are so fickle. Then he goes to the converted view. God is, God is, and is to be worshipped and feared. That's chapter five, verse one. Then unconverted again, chapter five, verse eight. What is the use of wealth? It brings neither justice nor satisfaction. However much you get, you leave it all behind. And then he finishes that sermon with the converted uh, perspective that godly man enjoys his life. He sees all its good things as gifts from God, and his heart rejoices. We may sometimes think that the unbeliever gets to enjoy this life, and we get to enjoy the next life. This is untrue and unbiblical. Does the unbeliever really enjoy all the chasing and striving in the world? Not if they stop to think about it. Why is our society so full of substance abuse, depression, glory-seeking? Especially among the rich and the famous, even. They are empty and longing for something to fill them. The Christian knows that all gifts are God's gifts. All circumstances belong to God. All trials, all triumphs, all defeats and all victories, all sorrows and all joys come from God, through God, and return back to God for his glory and our good, today and forever. So the third sermon starts at verse, or chapter 6, verse 1. It is a waste of time, he says, to hope that wealth will either last or satisfy, and that the world will ever be really different. And then he contrasts that with a converted view. In this life, some things are obviously better than others, and the fear of God is better than evil. And in this section, he weighs up all sorts of things that are better than something else. He says a good name is better than precious ointment. It is better to be serious than to be frivolous. It is better to be restrained than to be rash. Godliness is better than rebellion. Revelation is better than reason. The conclusion is that the fear of God is better than anything else. He decides that he will live his life in the fear of God. Then his fourth sermon starts at chapter 8, verse 14. And this is a summary of the unconverted life. Enjoy yourself while you can. For God can't be known, and death will soon end this uncertain life. But try to be wise in your speech and behavior. And then he has the converted view. Do good while you can, for you won't be able to, for soon you won't be able to. Serve God while you're young. And then he has the epilogue. And that's chapter 12, verse 8. And I'll read that. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. 
Besides being wise, the preacher also taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be, oh, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. Of much study is, weir is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, and every secret thing, whether good or evil. So here Solomon summarizes the viewpoint of the unconverted and explains his own purpose in writing this book. He draws an, a, un, a converted person's conclusion to the whole matter, to the, to the end of it. In verse 9 through 12, we see that he wrote this book to communicate wisdom to others and make it interesting. Divine wisdom is the end of our search. And then in 13 through 14, he says that if you have a proper understanding, then you will find the meaning of life. Our life is to be lived to please God. For it is to God that we ultimately need to answer. He will judge, is what he's saying. The great fact of life is not death. Rather, it's judgment. Life does not end with death. You cannot live with a death perspective, a death horizon. You must live with a, ju with a judgment perspective, a judgment horizon. To fare badly at the day of judgment is to really lose everything. But to fare well at the day of judgment is the only the beginning of future life and enjoying him forever. That's what he's saying. All right? That's Ecclesiastes. All right. Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is about the riddle of sex. Verse 1 of the book says that this is Solomon's Song of Songs. This is the Hebrew way of making, uh, making this a superlative, right? Similar to King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Holy of Holies, Song of Songs. This is the song of all songs. Unfortunately, it's a mu much neglected book. There are few topics in our day that are more important more conf and more confusing than sex and sexuality. I mean, look what's going on in the world right now. What the world tells us is very different than what God tells us. So this is the Song of Songs. Well, how many songs does Solomon write? He wrote 1,005 songs. It's in Kings 4.32. Of all the songs that he wrote, this is the best, this is the most important. The poetry used in Song of Solomon um, is similar to the Egyptian poetry of that time. Some think he wrote this book when he was younger. Uh, before he became apostate. Others think that he wrote this late in his life as an act of contrition. Either way, he's not the first person to write a song um, with truth about love in it without living up to those ideals. In our Bible, uh, it is the fifth book, it's the fifth of the poetry books. The Jews sing parts of this song at every Passover. To them, Proverbs is likened to the outer temple. Ecclesiastes is likened to the holy place. 
Song of Solomon is likened to the Holy of Holies of Scripture. Orthodox Jews consider this book to be an incredible gift to Israel and the holiest of all sacred writings. The book is made up of a series of poems or songs all put together. There is a refrain throughout the book connecting 13 smaller songs that are put together in a larger song. The stanzas are linked together by other people. The daughters of Jerusalem, the watchmen, and there's repetitions of various significant refrains. So the book centers on two people, Solomon and the Shulamite woman. King Solomon had a vineyard about 50 miles north of Jerusalem that he rented out to keepers. Solomon fell in love with one of the girls of this family. She was the Cinderella of the family, and she was mistreated. Her half-brothers made her work very hard in the vineyard. She had to set traps for foxes, and she even had to keep the flock. She is a rustic girl looking after this tenant vineyard. King Solomon arrives in disguise and shows interest in her and began courting her. He wins her heart and leaves and then promises to return. And then he comes back as the king, not in disguise, but as the king. And he returns to make the Shulamite woman his bride. It truly is a Cinderella-type story when you read it and you understand it. So the structure of the book is, is this. You have chapters 1, uh, 1, 1 through 3, 5. The Shulamite woman re reminisces on her courtship days. 3, 6 through 5, 1. The bridal pair enters Jerusalem where the wedding and its feast takes place. In chapter 4, Solomon write, or recites his love poem which was a custom in those days, which I'm glad is not a custom today. Chapter 5, uh, 2 through 6, 3. The Shulamite recounts a dream that she has had. She was alienated. and In this dream, she was alienated from Solomon, but went through agony of soul until she was finally reunited. And then 6, 4 through 8, 14. The love relationship between the two grows stronger as time goes by. And the book closes with the couple bathing in mutual love. So that's the overall structure. What are some unique features in the book? It's probably the most misunderstood book in the Bible. It's the only book where human love is the main theme. There's only one reference to God in the book, eight, in this verse eight or chapter eight, verse six. There is no specific reference to sin in the religious realm. There are no allusions to the other Old Testament books. And it's not alluded to by Christ or by any other New Testament book. So how are we to interpret the Song of Solomons? What is this book about? Some interpret this book as an allegory. They try to read... Um, this book and say that it is entirely about Christ's love for his people. But nothing in this book suggests that that's what it, the way it's meant to be read. It is about romantic love. It's not an allegory, but we can take analogy from this book. The Bible does say that the love of God for his people is akin to the love of a husband and wife. Some 
say that this book. Yeah, some say that this this is a girl's book. In Hebrews, in the Hebrew scriptures, the order of their scriptures goes Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Solomon. Proverbs ends with Proverbs thirty-one, the Proverbs thirty-one woman. Ruth then is the personification of the Proverbs thirty-one woman, and Song of Solomon is about a strong, godly woman to emulate. Some say that Proverbs is for boys. Song of Solomon is for girls. I believe all of it's for everybody, right? Um, but that's what some people will say. The book is filled with purpose. The Christian can be read and can read this book and learn to honor pure love in marriage. Western Christians tend to be embarrassed by the intimate expressions of love in this book. It shows that physical attraction and love can be enjoyed without lust and uncleanness. There is frank talk about the physical expression of love in, in a pure and noble way. We see Christ in the book. We see how much this bridegroom loves his bride, and we can't help but to think about how much the bridegroom loves his bride, the church. It is the perfect, this book is the perfect balance to Ecclesiastes, which is all about the mind and thinking but Christianity is more than just cerebral. It's about the emotion, about heart. The Christian life is not all thinking. It's not all feeling. There's a balance between the two. It is both together. This book tells us that I can have communion with the one that I have union. As we meditate on this book, our heart will be overcome with sweetness and tenderness. And our love for Jesus will be stirred up. So it just so happens, providentially, kind of cool how this works out. Um, I'm going on a walk a couple weeks ago, and I like to walk with, um, uh, you know, listen to a sermon and such. And so I pull out my phone, open up um, sermon audio, go to Kevin DeYoung, which is one of my favorite favorite pastors to listen to. He's a pastor of a church at Christ Covenant, and um, you know I'll have my glasses, so I can't really see. And I was like, I'll just pick one at the top, and um, lo and behold. He has a sermon called Three Rules for Romance, um, and that was preached on uh, January 29th, 2023. <clears throat> Highly recommend you listen to it. Um, it was very helpful, and I liked it, and so I was like, you know, I'm going to take notes of this, and y'all get the, I'm going to tell you my notes, basically, all right? So, um, Three Rules for Romance. Um, romantic love, so his first rule is romantic love is to be protected, Sex is not an evil thing made permissible by marriage, but it is a good thing protected by marriage. This is what the Shulamite says during her courtship. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house. His banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and, and his embrace and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, do, that you not stir up love, or not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. 
So in verse 6, we see an intimate embrace. She feels secure, protected, cared for. They are not yet married. They're in the courtship part. In verse 7, the bride turns to the bridewaids and implores them, Do not stir up love or awaken love until it pleases. Do not make yourself this hungry when it is not time to eat. Later in this chapter, in verse 17, she asks him to turn away, for she wants more of him. She asks him to leave, flee, go, because she wants more of her man. The main singer in this book is a woman, and she is a woman longing for the body of her husband. In chapter 3, she has a dream about her lover. Three, uh, 1 through 5. She is having a passionate dream and wants to bring him to bed. And then in that dream, at the end of it, she charges her bridesmaids not to arouse or awaken love until it is time. The point is sex belongs exclusively in the covenantal relationship of marriage. Human sexual instinct is to want sex without rules or limits. But that's not what the Bible says. Sex belongs exclusively to the covenantal relationship of marriage. Another way we see this is in chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> this can be a little bit confusing. I'll, I'll unpack it after I read it. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. When the bride came of age, the first, first part there, when the bride comes of age, she has a choice. She can be a wall or a door. If she is a wall, she's walled off her virginity until marriage. If she does this, her friends will celebrate her. If she is a door, opening herself wide, opening her sexuality wide to anyone who wants it, then they will try to protect her, and they will be the wall for her. The choice is chastity or promiscuity. In, in verse 10, this is the woman now answering as an adult woman, saying that she waited and kept her vineyard pure for her husband, and she has peace. Romantic love should be protected. Both man and woman must wait until marriage to enjoy sex. All right. His second point <clears throat> is that romantic love should be verbalized. So the Shelamite woman is self-conscious, but he doesn't, he doesn't see it. That's often the case. Chapter uh, verse. Chapter 1, verse 5. I am lovely. I, I'm sorry. I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, the, the, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where your pastor where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie, lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So in this first part, 
she's self-conscious because of her dark skin tone. She's not a black woman or a white woman. It's not about that. It's about she's been out in the fields working, and she's tanned, and that means she's poor, right? It's a sign of poverty. And so she is um, self-conscious about her dark skin. But the man, he thinks it looks awesome, right? He says she's amazing. So verse 8, I mean, sorry, uh, verse, yeah, verse 8. If you do not know, oh, most beautiful among women, you're the most beautiful out there. Follow in the tracks of the flock and, and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. All right, so the man thinks she is lovely. We should verbalize that. He verbalized that to her. She felt self-conscious, and he addressed it. It is also good to speak extravagantly about your spouse. And you'll see that a lot in this, in these, in this, in this book. There's a lot of over-the-top language. A lot of it we don't understand, right? She's comparing them to various things. Um, we don't understand it. We don't have to say it like that. But chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like are, are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a, a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that, you have, that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that gaze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadow flees, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether lovely, my love. There is no flaw in you. I'm going to take a quick side trip here. Um, you'll notice in verse uh, 1 and verse 7, there's the my or mine, the, the possessive. This is throughout the entire book. Um, there, there's the possessive words being used. So in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5, Paul says this. Now concerning the matters which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because you lack self-control, of your lack of self-control. The husband has authority over his wife's body, he says here, and the wife has authority over the husband's body. This is not a, a selfish possession, but a rightful possession. You are mine and I am yours, is what he's saying. And that's what we see throughout the whole book. <clears throat> Back to Song of Solomon. So it is good to be extravagant about, uh, to speak extravagantly about your spouse. 
chapter 4, verse 11. This is on their wedding day. Your lips drip nectar, my bride, honey and milk under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. What is he talking about here? On the wedding day, Solomon says that the, his bride is, his, is the promised land. She is the garden of Eden, a paradise for him. That's pretty extravagant. Chapter 7, verse 1. They're married now. Oh, how beautiful, or how beautiful you are, are your feet and sandals, O oh noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. Your navel is, rounded, is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is, heaped, is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like the ivory tower, an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools of, uh, in Heshbon. By the gates of Bath Rabin. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. Try that, man. And which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in your tresses. Oh, how, or how beautiful and pleasant you are. Oh, loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breast be like clusters of the vine, and scent and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Pretty extravagant speech. Okay. Um, no doubt what he's talking about there. But just so you so you recognize, it's not just the man who's speaking this way. The woman speaks this way about her man frequently. Here's an example. Chapter 5, verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among the 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. His eyes are like doves beside the stream of water, beside streams of water, bathed, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dipped, dipping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is the most sweet, is most sweet and, all, and is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So it is good to speak extravagantly about your spouse. If you don't feel this way, Maybe fake it until you make it. Okay? Do whatever you can to verbalize your spouse's loveliness. Pay attention to them. Smile. Uh, compliment a new outfit, a new haircut, how much they mean to you. Tell them that. Thank your spouse. Remember your special moments. Reminisce on them together. Verbalize your love often. You and your spouse should be great friends. That's what she says right there at the end. All right, third point that he makes is that romantic love should be celebrated. Sexual intimacy in marriage is a gift from God that should be enjoyed and celebrated. If a marriage is bad, almost always the sex is bad. Or non, if the sex is bad or non-existent, the marriage is often bad. 
chapter 4, verse 16 and 5, 1 is the literal and literary center of the book. It is the wedding night. It is the climax of the book, so to speak. There are 111 lines before this book, or this, this, these two verses, and 111 lines after these two verses. So this is the center. What does it say? They're at the moment when their relationship is going to be consummated with sexual love. And she says, oops, sorry. She says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choice fruits. Choicest fruits. And he replies, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then the friends rejoice. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. So the last part of the book is, is the, the honeymoon song. And in 712, verse 712, I want to point that out. He says, there I will give you my love. And what we take from that, what we should, what we should do is we should understand that we are to give our love to our spouse. Sex is not to be a selfish thing. It's a selfless thing. Giving oneself to the other. So, we have the three great mysteries in life. Job is about the riddle of suffering. Ecclesiastes is about the riddle of existence. Song of Solomon is about the riddle of sex. The book ends with the bride calling to her husband to come to her for marital sex. Chapter 8, 14, she says, Make haste, my beloved, and be like the, a gazelle or a, stag, or a young stag on the mountains of spices. We see Christ's love in this book. And we see, and we, like a bride, call out to Christ, our groom, to come to us, to return quickly. We must repent of all manner of sexual sins, of not spending any time or effort developing our sexual intimacy. Sex ought to be a regular occurrence in the marriage relationship. We must remember, think on, reminisce about the good times, the great moments of intimacy, friendship, fun, joy, laughter. And then we should rejoice. God has given you a gift in your spouse of romantic love, each for the other. Any questions, any thoughts, comments? All right, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us and that you are our beloved. And we look forward to the day when we will be united with you in heaven. Help us as we go and worship to worship you in spirit and in truth and help us to commune with you during communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.